corner and have a quick word of prayer. Uh, Father God, just good to be here this morning and just thank you for the people that you brought out. And we just pray, Lord, that as always you would teach, we would listen. Let your spirit guide and direct in all ways and all things. And um, Lord, be with everything going on in the back. And just thank you for the time to be in here this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Romans 13. Now, in our study through the book of Romans here, we spent the first eight chapters in Romans laying down the foundation, the groundwork of theology. Just the Christianity 101. We're all sinners. It's only through Jesus Christ we're saved. And Jesus is the only thing that can fix a life, save a marriage, help the kids. He's the only thing that can do any of that. And that was through Romans 1 through 8. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul used the example of Israel as an example of salvation, that they rejected salvation and how salvation came to us. And then from Romans 12 on, we've talked about how this is all application now. All application on how we're supposed to take this information and how we're supposed to go live the life. So the first few verses of Romans 12, we talked about the gifts of the Spirit. Verses 9 through 21 of Romans 12, we called it the Proverbs of the New Testament, just little verses of how you're supposed to live your life. Last week, the beginning of Romans 13, we talked about the government a little bit. And then now, today, we're going to do verses 8 through 14. Now, this is a tough lesson, and the reason this lesson is tough is because the message is so simple. It's really a straightforward message. There's two key verses we're going to focus on. The first one is verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And the other verse is verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Two really simple things. Love everybody, verse 10. Verse 14, live for Jesus and don't live in sin. Now, it's a really simple thing, but the problem is, it's one of those classics where the answer is easy, but the follow-through is hard. It's really easy to hear that and say, yep, that's what we need to do, but then to go out and do it is really difficult. So the first thing we need to talk about is love. So before we get to this verse 10 of love does no harm to a neighbor, we have to talk about what love really is. And there's two introductory passages I want to use to talk about this. Can you go to 1 Corinthians 13, please? 1 Corinthians 13 is probably the best chapter in the Bible on love. Because we're all familiar with the idea of love. The problem is we use this term love way, way, way too much. I love my wife, I love my dog, and I love chicken McNuggets. Now, I would assume there's different orders of love in those. Because I really like Chicken McNuggets. But the point is, we use words like love like that, and we say that word love covers everything. Well, when the Bible was written, the Bible was written in Greek here, and there was three different words for love in that. And so when you read the word love in the Bible, it's different words. Even though it's all translated the same, sometimes it's different words. And we have this concept of what love is, and we have a really messed up concept of the idea of love. Because we don't base the concept on the biblical idea of love. We base it on what we think and what we have been taught. We base it on what Hollywood shows in movies. We base it on what we see on TV. It's a really messed up thing. Because the world defines love sometimes as love with no standards or no morals or no anything. I was thinking about the different descriptions of love that we are thrown at us. Uh, growing up as a kid, um, my mom and dad used to like to listen to the Beatles a lot, so we grew up listening to the Beatles. And I always remember the song where they used to sing, Love is All You Need. Now, I don't know how that's worked out 50 years later, but I don't think it's worked out the way that everybody thought. And once again, growing up in that time frame, I should say, and watching the old movies, I remember one time watching the movie Love Story. You remember the classic Love Story? And it had that wonderful line, love means never having to say what? Or sorry. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> this idea of I love you so much, I don't have to tell you I'm sorry. Now, now, do that with your wife next time. I know I was a real jerk, but I don't have to say I'm sorry because I love you. No, love means you say you're sorry. Love means you want to work on it. Love means all this type of stuff. And, but this is what Hollywood teaches us. This is what the world teaches us. And we don't look at what the biblical definition of love is. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love is. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. 
Love suffers long as in kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's what love is. We'll go back to verse 4, some translations. Love is patient, love is kind. So if, if I say I have love for you, I want to be patient with you. I want to be kind. The truth of the matter is sometimes it's hard to have patience with people. That's why I kind of like my translation a little bit where it says love suffers long. If you've ever been in a relationship with somebody and you're trying to base that relationship on love, sometimes they're suffering because it's difficult. And, and going on, depending on what your translations say, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. If I love you, I'm not going to put my interest above you. Is not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. One translation says, love keeps no records of wronged. Wow. So when I say I have love for somebody, I'm not going to remember all those hurt and harm and pain that they've done to me. A lot of times I hear people say, I love them, but I'll never forget what they did. Part of love is that you put that behind you and you move forward. You forgive and you forget. This is what the definition of love is supposed to be. It's supposed to be patient and kind, does not keep it record of when it's wrong, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil. It's a beautiful concept, and this is what love is supposed to be. Now, the question comes up, great idea, how in the world do we get that? There's our second introductory passage before we get into the heart of the message. Can you go to 1 John, please? 1 John, chapter 4. Because we need to figure out how do we get to this point of love. 1 John, chapter 4. Because I think we want to have that concept of love in our relationships and our dealings with others. How do we get there? How do we do it? Because you can't do it on your own. You know, you hear those phrases, up there's going to live on love. That doesn't go real long. You need that foundation of the Lord, and you need what God has to say. So let's see what it says here. 1 John chapter 4. Let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. See, to have this love relationship with other people, you first got to have the foundation of the Lord. If the Lord is not in that it's not going to last. It's not going to work. Christ is the foundation of everything we do. And so therefore, for me to say I have love towards people, that means it has to be done through Jesus Christ. Because you're going to have unlovable people in your life. I have unlovable people in my life. You're going to have people that's really difficult for you to get along with. I'm going to have that too. So what do you do with those people? You love them. Well, how do you do that? Because you have to realize that love comes from God. Verse 8, God is love. Verse 9, and this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which is just a fancy word, that means payment, payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's how simple this concept is. I know what love is by reading 1 Corinthians 13. Patient, kind, keeps no record of wrongs, does not seek its own, is not rude. And then I realize the only way I can have that love towards people is because of God, because God himself is love. Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. God lives in me, and so therefore his love affects the way I deal with and work with other people. Verse 16, And we have known and believed that the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. That's what this concept of love is. Look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Verse 19 sums up everything. We love him because he first loved us. That's what it comes down to. God loves us. So since God loves us, we go out and love other people. There's two ways. 
first way that God loves us is through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so that's why you can look right here in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. God has a love for me, so therefore I don't have to fear things. He's my father. He'll take care of me. So when something comes my way that brings in some fear, some worry, some anxiety, I have to say, you know what? I don't have to worry about that. My dad's going to take care of it. Just like with my boys at home, if something happens to them that makes them scared, as long as they can get to mom or dad and grab onto the leg, you know what? They feel fine. doesn't matter what's happening around them. As long as they have mom or dad and they're hanging on to mom and dad, they feel safe and secure. Same thing spiritually. As long as I just hold on to the leg of my Father in heaven, I'm going to feel safe and secure. Perfect love casts out fear. The time I allow fear, worry, and anxiety to get the best of me is when I let go of my dad and I try to do it on my own. That leads to fear. Perfect love casts out that fear. That's the first way we see love. The second way is because God loves us, now we love other people. If you're trying to do this on your own because you're just a really nice person, that doesn't work. Unless your love is based on Jesus Christ, unless your love is based on the biblical principles of the Bible, it's not going to last. You're not going to be able to have strong friendships, strong relationships, a strong marriage because you're trying to do it on your own. One of the questions I always ask people when we do premarital counseling is, uh, why do you love her? And one of the usually the answers is, oh, I love her because she's fun, she's cute, she makes me smile. No one's ever made me feel this way before. I said, well, what happens when she's not cute? What happens when you wake up one day and she's ugly? You still love her? Well, I mean, yeah. What happens when she's not fun? What happens when she doesn't make you smile? What happens when she's a horrible pain you have to deal with her all day? You still love her? Yeah. So your love for her is not based on her being cute and fun and makes you feel good. I said, the reason you love her, I always tell them it's a trick question. You love her because God told you to. You love your husband because God told you to. You love your wife because God told you to. You love your kids because God told you to. You love your neighbors, your co-workers, your brothers and sisters in the Lord because God told you to love them. If we base our love on something that they did that makes us feel good, that love will fail because that person will fail us. Your love is based on God said you love everybody, and the reason you love everybody is because I love everybody. And so therefore, since I love everybody, you love everybody because I am love. Think about this. When God chose to describe himself, he chose love. God is love. What did Jesus say? They will know you are my disciples by your love. That's the difference with us. As Christians, we're supposed to love the unlovables. Now, at this point, real quick, I have to throw this out there. Does this not mean that this love is an all-accepting type of love? Yeah, we love everybody. But we also don't like everything that people do. God loves me. No doubt about it. God does not sometimes like the choices I make in my lifestyle. God does not like some of the things I do. That's sin. But he still loves me. I don't like some of the things that my kids do, but I still love them. I don't like some of the way you guys live your lives. You don't like some some way I live my life. But God still loves us and I still love you. And we have to separate that sometimes that I can love that person like Jesus loves them but still be able to go up to them in love and say, you know what, I love you enough to tell you what you're doing is wrong. The Bible uses a term that we don't use much called admonish, which means to warn, that I can go up to somebody and say, listen, I love you. I truly love you and I love you so much that I'm going to tell you I think that this action is going to hurt you. It's not in line with God's word. I'm saying that out of love. And I hope that someone would feel comfortable enough to come up to me and say, James, I love you enough to tell you that action is going to hurt you. Love is also speaking the truth. In fact, Ephesians says, speak the truth in love. Now, that we have that introduction done, let's jump back into this. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, you should not covet. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. The key verse is verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. And he gives actual specific things right here. Verse 9, that you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, etc. Very simply put, if I have love for my wife, since I have love for my wife, 
Verse 9, I'm not going to go commit adultery. Because the love of God in me is a love for my wife. I'm, I'm not going to go commit adultery. But it even goes one step further. If I have love for my brothers in the Lord, I don't want to lust after your wife. Because I have love for my brothers and sisters in the Lord. In fact, in 1 Timothy, it comes right all says, says that we're supposed to treat all sisters in Christ purity. So therefore, love dictates my marriage, that I stay pure in my marriage, but also love dictates my eyes and my actions and my thoughts, because I don't want to look at another sister in Christ, or I don't want to harm my brother by lusting after his wife. I don't want to do that. Because sometimes we look at this and say, well, it just says adultery. I haven't done anything. Yeah, but sometimes we think those things. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Jesus says to even lust after another woman is adultery. God says, I love you, and I want that love to permeate your mind that you don't even want to look at anybody else. You don't want to act on anything. You want to keep love where it's supposed to be in the bounds of marriage. That's love. Next one, you should not murder. Now, this one's pretty straightforward. It sounds even silly saying it. I should love you enough that I won't murder you. Okay, that's pretty simple, straightforward. I hope no one's sitting here struggling with that. It's like, boy, i got to really underline that verse. You know, that's kind of scary. But Matthew 5 says you've committed murder when you have anger in your heart towards somebody. We may never pick up any type of weapon to do any type of physical harm to somebody, but how many of us have walked away from somebody seething in anger towards them? God says that's murder. That's murder in your heart. And I should love you enough to say I'm not going to allow those thoughts and emotions to control me and I'm going to forgive you because love keeps no record of the wrongs. And I hope that you would love me enough to say, you know what, James has wronged me, James has hurt me, but I can forgive him and move on because we don't want to allow that anger and that bitterness and that murderous thoughts to get the best of us. And this happens a lot. We've said this numerous times before. As Christians, we're so quick to accept the forgiveness of Jesus. But when somebody has wronged us, our kids, our spouse, our co-workers, our friends, our family, our pastor, oh my goodness, we'll hold a grudge. We'll be angry. We'll never let it go. I can never forgive them for what they did. Well, if Jesus forgave me, I can forgive anybody. But you don't know what they've done to me. It goes back to our lesson in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. If you haven't got that, I encourage you to go back. If you're struggling with unforgiveness and anger and frustration towards people, I encourage you to go back and get that because we talked about how you're supposed to love your enemies. Love all. And that changes everything the way we do it. Next one, you should not steal. I should love you enough that if I go over to your house, you don't have to worry about bolting everything down. You should not bear false witness. I should love you enough that you don't have to worry about what I'm going to say about you behind your back. You should not covet. I should love you enough that when we end a conversation that you shouldn't have to worry about, oh my goodness, I hate talking to that person. They have everything. Their life is so easy. Their life is so simple. It just frustrates me talking to them because every time I talk to them, they talk about how wonderful the kids are, how wonderful their spouse is, how wonderful their job is. My life is miserable. You should, I should love you enough to not do that. It all is summed up into you should love your neighbor as yourself. That dictates my actions towards you and towards other people. Now the question comes up of, well, who's my neighbor? Well, according to Luke chapter 10, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the disciples asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And you're not going to like Christ's answer. Christ's answer is everybody. Everybody's your neighbor. Everybody you run into is your neighbor. We're supposed to have this love towards everybody. Love does, verse 10, no harm to a neighbor. There's no ill thoughts. There's no ill actions. And in my, in my thoughts, my actions, and my deeds, it's all done out of love. The love of 1 Corinthians 13, which I have learned and only can do through God, 1 John 4, which then dictates how I live my life towards other people. It's powerful. But here's the thing. It's one of the toughest lessons to apply. Oh, my goodness. This idea of love is throughout the Bible. I, dare I say, I think every epistle in the New Testament has got something about love in there because God knows how hard 
this is. We all have somebody in our lives that we find almost unlovable. You may be married to them. You may be your kids. Maybe your parents. It may be your coworkers. But you maybe have somebody that you just almost deem unlovable. God says, I love him. Can you? God says, I can forgive him. Can you? That's the example. And he repeats this again and again. You know, we're at the phase right now in the Irvin house where we're starting to get on the roads and all the boys are starting to ride bikes. So we're, we're training them. Before you get on the road, you go, you look to the left, nothing's coming. You look to the right, nothing's coming. Then we look again, you look to the left, nothing's coming. You look to the right, nothing's coming. We all do this. It takes about a good half hour to cross the road because you're making sure. But you are training them. And we will keep saying it again and again and again. Well, that's the reason why God keeps saying love again and again. I need to be trained. Before we go somewhere, the boys buckle themselves in. And we sit there and say, is everybody buckled? Yes. Okay, is everybody buckled? Yes. You check again and again and again because you're training them to make sure you're buckled up before you leave. Well, God is saying from all the New Testament, love, love and more love. So this is why this message is here about love. And you know what? There's a message in Ephesians about love. There's a message in 1 John about love. There's a message in 1 Corinthians about love. We struggle with it. It comes down to verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. If I love you, I want you to live a biblical life. And if you love me, you want me to live a biblical life. If I love you, I'm going to come into your life and say whatever I can do to help you live a life that's in line with God's word towards other people and yourself. And I hope you would do the same to me. That's what love is. Love is not compromising. Love is not ignoring the rules we don't like. Love is we want the best for each other because that's what God wants. So now that we understand that, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, look at verse 11. And do this... Knowing the time that now is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Verse 11. Now that we hear this, verse 11, wake up, do something about it. See, this is what happens. We hear a message about love. It's like, yep, I got it. Nope, I heard it. Wake up. Do something. Don't just sit there and say, that was good. Good points. Now we need to wake up and go do something about it. The problem is a lot of us are spiritually asleep. We're not doing anything. Or we're spiritually sleepwalking. You know, I know I serve the fourth Sunday every month, so I'll be back there to serve. I'll make sure I read my devotional every day. I'll make sure I'm at church. And we're just going through the motions. We're spiritually sleepwalking through life. God says, wake up. Now, a lot of us don't like to wake up. Now, we did a message similar to this. I believe it was back in Ephesians. And one of the passages was about waking up, spiritually waking up. And I brought in an alarm clock. And I don't know if you remember that. And we set the alarm clock up, and we had the alarm go off during the message. And we talked about how an alarm clock is there to wake us up. But we said most every alarm clock has one button that is one of the most amazing inventions of all mankind, the snooze button, yeah. Greatest thing mankind has ever created is the snooze button. It's a magical button that once you just hit it, you get extra minutes of sleep. Depending on what yours is, mine is nine minutes, and it's just a magic button that when I hit that button, I just don't have to get up for nine more minutes. Now, some of you live off your snooze button. You, you've broken snooze buttons because you just keep hitting it again and again and again and again. I know people that will set their alarm, and they'll hit their snooze button for a good hour plus, and they'll just keep hitting it again and again and again. It's a great button. But this is what we do spiritually sometimes. We hear a message like this and say, yep, you know what? He's right. The word's right. I need to do a better job loving my neighbor. I need to do a better job loving my wife. I need to do a better job loving my boss. That sounds good. But you know what? Just not today. Snooze button. I'll come back to that in a couple of days. You know, he's right. Word's right. There's some great passages in there about casting off the things of the flesh. And I'm doing stuff right now I know I shouldn't be doing. That doesn't line up with God's word. And that's right. And I'll, and I'll do that in a little bit. But right now I'm just going to hit the snooze button. And I'll come back to that. 
That's a really tough season of life right now. This is what we do. We spiritually hit the snooze button all the time. That's why God says in verse 11, wake up, get up, do something. And why? Verse 11, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Every day is one day closer to being with Jesus, either through the rapture or through death. I know that's not a real pick-me-up. That's a fact. Every day, you're one day closer to eternity, either through Jesus Christ returning and taking you home, or one day closer to dying. And so therefore, your salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You're closer. So if we really do believe time is short, if we really do believe that the end may be coming soon, why would I not want my lifestyle to be changed? Why would I not want my actions to be changed? Why would I not want to go out and live for Christ with everything that I have? Because look at verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. We've spent too much time in the night. That's a reference just to the flesh and to the lust and to the sin. We've done enough of that junk. Time to cast that off. But this is what I like about verse 12. He doesn't just tell us to cast something off. In verse 12, he also tells us to put something on. So we're supposed to cast off the works of darkness, verse 12, but then we put on the armor of life. Light, excuse me. So what are we supposed to cast off? Well, verse 13 describes what we're supposed to cast off. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness and lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Let's just be honest. There was a lot of lewdness and lust and strife and envy and anger and sin in our lives. God says, get rid of it. Cast it off. As you get rid of that junk, verse 12, put on armor. Put on the armor. Let's talk about this armor for a little bit. Can you go to Ephesians 6? Ephesians 6, please. And keep your hand in Ephesians because we're going to finish up in Ephesians 5. So let's go to Ephesians 6, make a couple points, and then we're going to come back to Romans and go back to Ephesians and finish this up. Ephesians 6, please. Ephesians 6. Let's talk about this idea of armor. Because here's the thing. We're supposed to put this armor on, and as Christians, I think we have a tendency to forget that we're in a battle. You know, we just had a baptism service a couple Sundays ago, and one of the things that we always say during the baptism service is this idea of um, when you make a stand for the Lord publicly, you're, of course you're going to get hit. That's just what the enemy's going to do. You're making a stand publicly for the Lord, so he's going to throw everything he can at you to knock you back. So we always say we need to pray for those people getting baptized because they're making a public confession of, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, of course the enemy's going to push back. That's why we need to have our armor on. And what happens a lot of times as a Christian, we don't put our armor on until it's too late. We're supposed to have our armor on because we realize it's a battle every day. Look here at Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Stop there real quick. Where does your strength and power come from? The Lord. From no place else. I still run into people that says, well, I can fix this. I can fix my marriage. I can fix my kids. I can fix my addictions. I can fix my problems. I can fix it. No, you can't. If you could fix it, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? You only can fix it, verse 10, by being strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That's the only way. So once we get that settled, how do we do it? Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. See, guys, verse 12, it's a battle. We wrestle daily. We fight daily. Now, the thing is, we think we're wrestling and fighting against people. We think that co-worker that we can't stand... We think that person's the enemy. No, that person's not the enemy. The enemy may be using that person to cause problems, but that person's not the enemy. The battle's not against you and her or him. Sometimes we think the enemy is our spouse. Sometimes we think the enemy is in our family. Those people aren't the enemy. It's the power behind that enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not me versus anybody. It's the Holy Spirit living in me 
versus Satan. That's what it comes down to. And when you have that mindset, you start realizing how to pray. Because when you look at that person that's causing so much disruption in your life, and you look at that person that you deem unlovable, you start realizing it's not them. Lord, just, just speak to their heart. Speak to their heart a heart of salvation. Speak to their heart a heart of peace. Because they're not the enemy. We may think they are, but they're not. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And if we truly do think they're their enemy, well, the Bible says you're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to pray for them. Bless them, in fact, the Bible says. Jesus says, I died for everybody. So we're supposed to put our armor on in this battle. And what type of armor is it? Well, you can study that out yourself. Verses 14 on there. But it talks about having the shield of faith. I have faith that God gets me through all situations. Prayer, the battle of prayers. Prayer is so vital. Uh, the sword of the Spirit, that idea of God's Word. But the point is we're supposed to put this armor on. Because it's a constant battle in all we do. Now keep your hand here in Ephesians 5, because that's what we're going to finish up with. But let's jump back to Romans 13 real quick. Because we're in this constant battle. We have to have our armor on. So I put on the armor... I cast off those things that are sin, that's causing problems in my life and in my marriage and my relationships. I cast those things off, and, and I don't want them anymore because they're just darkness. They're sin. I know they're wrong. And then what do I do? Well, I put on one more thing. Did you catch this in verse 14? I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I put on the armor, but I also have to put on Jesus. See, the armor is the what. Jesus is the why. See, I know people that put on the armor of God. They're going to go out and just fight. Why are you fighting? You're fighting because you want to see people get saved in Christ. That's what matters. That's all that matters is souls saved. And so when I only put on the armor, I also put on Jesus, and I act like him in all I do and say. We throw that little phrase around a lot of what would Jesus do. That's so true. What is the nature of Jesus with this? How would he handle this? What is God's wisdom on this? I want to live a life that lines up with him. If the Bible says it's wrong, then it's wrong. If the Bible says it's right, then it's right. It's that simple. And that's what we want to do. So I put on the armor, I put on Jesus, and then what do I do? Verse 13, let us walk. Walk. Walk denotes effort. I know a lot of Christians that put on the armor of God, they put on Jesus, then they sit. How are you supposed to serve the Lord by sitting? Christianity is action. Christianity is getting out there. Christianity is being around the people that need to know about Jesus. Christianity is loving the unlovables. That's what we're supposed to do. It's really easy to just put the armor of God on and sit and say, okay, Jesus, return. But then we're not doing anything for him. So we put the armor on, we put Jesus on, and then we walk. We go forward. We live our lives for the Lord. And how do we walk? My translation says walk properly. Some of your translations say walk honestly, walk decently. That's the way we're supposed to. It's a biblical life that we're living. My life lines up with the scriptures. And then you know what? The truth of the matter is, as I have this armor on, as I have Jesus on, still going to be tempted. I'm still going to want to sin sometimes. So look at the end of verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Make no provision. One translation reads it a little differently here. It says, don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Wow, we have a tendency to think about sin sometimes, don't we? Some of it's the lustful type of sin, looking at things we shouldn't look at, doing things that we shouldn't do. Boy, I hope that he comes over and talks to me. I hope she comes over and talks to me today, that type of lustful sin. Sometimes it's lustful things towards things that aren't good for us. You know, the drugs, the alcohol, or whatever. You know, those type of things are going to bring us down. Sometimes it's also the lustful things of just, we've talked about this before, anger. Those anger fantasies. Hope she says something to me today. Because when she says something to me today, I'm going to tell her what I think. And you're planning it. I can't wait till she gets home because when she gets home, I'm going to go through this, this, and this, and this. If I get home today and he's in a bad mood, oh, he's going to hear it today. We're making plans for sin. This is what we do, and we don't really think we are. Just stop and think at your life sometimes. We do this. We plan for sin. And sometimes it's a fun planning for sin because it's almost this ambiguous, anonymous person that we can plan for. 
Like you feel like you have a righteous anger. And so you're going to call the company up. And whatever operator answers that phone, I'm just going to let her know I'm not happy with the service. And it's, what are we doing? We're supposed to love all, love the unlovables. Now, once again, does this mean that we let truth slide? Of course not. You put your foot down when something's wrong, the Bible says that. Does this mean that we can't be firm in our responses sometimes? Of course not you can be firm. But you speak the truth in love, the Bible says. In love. We have a tendency sometimes to let our flesh get the best of us. So let's finish this up. Can you go to Ephesians 5? Let's put the final touches on this. We've learned what love is, 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient. It's kind. keeps no record of wrongs. It forgives. Love is pure. It does what God wants us to do, what the Bible says is right. We say that we love the Lord, and we want to walk in a way that shows his love by our actions of not being in sin. We learned that the only way we can have love is by 1 John 4, because God is love. The only way we know love is through God alone. Well, then we went back to Romans 13, and it says, If I love people, I'm going to love my neighbor. My actions will show the way that is. And then the last part of Romans said, I'm going to wake up and realize I'm not going to let the flesh control me. So, what's Ephesians 5 say? Let's bring this all together. Let's actually start in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 31. It says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Look at that. Verses 31 and 32. Because God loves me, verse 31, I'm not going to let bitterness, wrath, anger, and all that junk be in my life. Verse 32, I'm going to be kind to people I run into and forgive them because Christ forgave me. Verse 1 of chapter 5, I'm going to imitate God because God is love. And verse 2, I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to put effort into this. I'm just not going to read the verses. I'm not just going to underline the verses. I'm going to go out and walk in love. You know what else that means? If there's something in my life that I know is sinful and wrong, I'm going to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need strength. I can't do this. I want to stop. I want to stop this because I want to live a life for you. Verse 3, but fornication... Sexual immorality, all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for the saints. Verse 3, I call this what Teflon Christianity. Nothing sticks to you. They want to say something bad about you, but there's nothing bad to say. It's not even named about you. Now think about that. If someone would come up to you and say, pick out the evil in my life, pick out the things I'm doing wrong, you want them to sit there and scratch their head for a second and say, I I don't know. But yes, sometimes as Christians, our sin is so obvious. We wonder why our witness is so weak. What type of sin is there? Verse 4, neither filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting. Boy, sometimes as Christians, our humor is just like the humor of the world, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For we know this, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If we are born-again believers, our lifestyles need to show this. That's the way it is. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Our actions and lifestyles are different because God has saved us through Jesus Christ. We're born again. And so therefore, the life we live is different. Were we this way at one time? You bet. Look at verse 8. For you once were in darkness. Come on. We have all been in verses 3, 4, and 5. We've all been in filthiness, uncleanliness, covetousness, uh, foolish talking, coarse jesting, sexual immorality. We've all been there. But the thing is, verse 8, you were once there, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. My lifestyle and actions are different because of what God has done. As we've said out here so many times, too many times, you can't tell the Christians from the world because the Christians dress like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, live like the world. 
We're different. Does not mean we're better. Does not mean we're judgmental. But we have a different moral standards of what the Bible says and what God says is right. Verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. And look at verse 14, here's our second point. Awake, therefore he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Let's wake up. Let's wake up to our lives and see what is in our lives that needs to change. Maybe it's the love thing. Maybe you have a group of people right now it's really hard for you to love. I mean, it's really hard for you to love. Look at them through the eyes of Jesus. Maybe you have some unforgiveness in your heart, some anger, some wrath, some bitterness. You need to let that go in forgiveness. Hard to do. Maybe it's the lifestyle choices. And you're looking at verse 4, the filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, etc. You're like, yeah, that's, that's me. Lord, help me. Why? Because of verse 14, I want to wake. I want to spiritually wake up. I don't want to be that man anymore. I want things to be different. Lord, help me to do that. As we've said at the beginning of this message, this is a tough lesson. It's not because the concept is difficult. The message, excuse me, the answer is simple. It's the follow-through that's hard. Lord, help us to be the men and women of God that you've called us to be, to love and to live purely and to live rightly in the Lord. Listen, either Jesus is returning or we're going to die. Every day is one day closer to that, and we want to live our lives for him in all that we do and all that we say. Marv, you can come forward here for the final song. As he's coming up here for the final song, let's just have a word of prayer about this.